Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. So as you're turning there, you may recall that last week uh, in the morning I preached from Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16, and I mentioned that there was a, a, a part B or part 2 to the previous uh, section, which is verses 11 through 14, uh, that I was going to preach in the next evening's service, and that's this service. So, you are getting the second part of a ser- uh, sermon that I preached two weeks ago, and I will remind you uh, about the very basic details of that first point uh, when the time comes in the sermon. So, we are in... We're in chapter 2, uh, starting in... I'm, I'm going to actually back up, because I think it would be helpful to back up. I'll, I'm going to back up to the beginning of the chapter and read through verse 14. So this is the word of the Lord. Reverently listen to what God is saying to you and me. Then, after an interval of 14 years, <clears throat> I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up. <clears throat> And I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They also they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I also was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? I'll stop there. 
All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for opportunities such as we have now to consider further your word and its import for our lives. We thank you that it is you who speaks herein. We thank you that we can be greatly blessed and you intend to greatly bless us as we diligently seek for the truth of your word and its application to our lives. Would you please be with us now and help us to benefit from this And would you please glorify yourself through the preaching. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Kids, uh, Bebo, you know the story of Goliath. Tegan, you do too. Uh, David and Goliath, right? You've heard that that account of what happened. Well, you may recall, uh, uh, after David confronted Goliath, and Goliath mocked him and uh, uh, ridiculed him because he was a young boy, and I'm just reading here from the account, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It says, Then David said to the Philistine, to Goliath, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. Now, did you hear how confident David is in his in his uh, opposition to Goliath there, he's very confident. Here this man towers above him. He was a huge man. He was taller than the ceiling is. Um, and, and David was presu- presumably probably half his height. Uh, and yet he, in that text, in that verse I just read to you, shows great courage against this, this uh, valiant warrior of the Philistines who had killed so many people and was planning on killing David. And yet David isn't afraid of him, is he? He's not. Well, how do, you, uh, how do you think it was that David had the courage to stand up to this giant warrior, uh, this, um, yeah, this, uh, 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 yeah, one of the best warriors probably that existed on the whole earth at that time? How do you think he had a, was able to do that? Do you know why he was able to do that? Because he feared God more than he feared Goliath. That's why. He feared God more than he feared Goliath. When I use the word fear, by the way, I don't mean uh, that we are to be terrified of God. But fear, by that I mean uh, have respect for and stand in awe of God's greatness and be in be. Be amazed by the greatness of God in, in, my, in your heart. That's the fear I'm talking about when I say fear God. Okay, But he feared God more than he feared Goliath. And that's why he could say what he did. And remember, he won. Remember that? He beat Goliath. God gave him the grace to beat Goliath. I tell you this because it relates to the, the sermon uh, that, that I'm going to uh, preach here, or that I'm starting to preach here. I'll get to the points in just a minute, and I'll remind you about what I just said about Goliath when I get to those points. But before we do that, I want to give a little background here, a little reminder of some things that have happened. First of all, the confrontation that is described in this passage between um, uh, Paul and Peter uh, took place during a fellowship meal, similar to the one that we have in the back of the church on Sundays. But it was a fellowship meal that took place at the congregation that was in 
Syrian Antioch. There were two Antiochs. One was in a place called Pisidian, or Pisidia, and uh, a region called Pisidia, and that was Pisidian Antioch. And this is in Syria. This is called Syrian Antioch. And so it's north of uh, Jerusalem, uh, north and uh, mostly north of Jerusalem. I can't think it's about 100 miles or so. At any rate, takes place at a fellowship meal in Pisidian Antioch. Now, background here. First century Jews, not Christians, but Jews, in the first century in Jesus' time, Paul's time, considered Gentiles, non-Jews, to be ceremonially unclean. That is, ritually dirty, you might say. Not not with dirt, but uh, uh, unholy. And they consider Jews to be unholy, or ceremonially unholy, which in fact, Gentiles, which in fact Gentiles were. They were unholy uh, under the Mosaic Covenant. And the Jews thought that they too would become unclean if they got too close to the Gentiles, who were unclean. So in an effort to avoid becoming unclean themselves, First century observant, first century Jews generally stayed away from Gentiles, especially at, in meal situations. They would just stay away from. Them. Now, of course, with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus, when uh, with his um, completion of his atoning work came the abolition of all the Old Testament ceremonial laws and the various distinctions that those laws made between things clean and unclean. We all uh, here, I believe, know that. Also, with the death, life, death, resurrection of Christ, came the removal uh, of all the religious barriers that had separated uh, Jews and Gentiles under the Mosaic Covenant. It did away with all of that. And here's the thing. There is no doubt whatsoever that Peter and Barnabas were fully aware of this fact, that, that Jews and Gentiles were no longer separate, uh, separated. Uh, there was no longer the clean-unclean distinction. Because you remember, after all, Peter was the one who, to whom God had given that vision of a great sheet filled with unclean or formerly unclean animals coming down out of heaven. And God told him, he said, kill and eat. And Peter was objected uh, three times, and finally Peter realized, oh, the Lord is trying to make a point here. Uh, and the point was that the distinctions between clean and unclean, not only between uh, uh, foods like animal meat, but also people, Jews and Gentiles, no longer applied anymore in the New Testament age. And so Peter had that vision, which he had just before he came to Cornelius' household. And you remember how the Lord connected those two, and he gave him the vision so that he would know. It's okay to go to the Gentiles' household and eat with them and preach to them. And Barnabas, Barnabas also, he was one who had accompanied Paul when Paul went up to Jerusalem, uh, as we read just a few moments ago, Barnabas accompanied him when he went up to Jerusalem to submit his gospel that he had been preaching to the Gentiles, to the other apostles for their uh, approval. And uh, Barnabas was there the whole time, and that gospel, which was approved by Peter and James and John, was a gracious, works-free, in terms of justification, works-free gospel that placed Jews and Gentiles on equal footing before God. And Barnabas was there for all of that, that we just read of in the earlier part of the chapter. 
And so Barnabas undoubtedly agreed with Paul that this was this was the gospel. It's it, it's not salvation by works. It's not, uh, and there is no longer the Jew Gentile barrier wall between the two. So, what happened? Well, Peter had gone up. I say up, gone north. It was probably actually gone down using uh, biblical language. I think uh, Antioch is lower than Jerusalem is, elevation. But anyway, we'll say up. Peter had gone up to Antioch, north, following Paul's visit to Jerusalem that we read about in verse 1. He'd gone up there, um, and he began to eat with the Gentile Christians in the church there, uh, in that, and in that city. Verse 12 told us that. Well, news of Peter's practice up in Antioch of eating with Gentiles, news of that reached Jerusalem, trickled back to Jerusalem. And when it did, it caused a scandal, really, uh, especially among unconverted Jews in the city who heard, heard this rumor about Peter. And because of Peter's uh, scandal, because of the scandal uh, that Peter's behavior in Antioch was causing in Jerusalem... The Apostle James, apparently, we have to kind of read a little bit between the lines here, but the Apostle James apparently decided to send envoys up to Antioch um, to urge Peter to discontinue his practice of eating with Gentile Christian believers. These envoys from James appealed to Peter, and they were successful in their appeal. It had its intended effect. He stopped eating with Gentiles, as we read in verses 12 and 13. So last week, the first point of the sermon last week, uh, was that we need to fear God more than man so that we don't do something similar to what Peter did. What Peter did was he tossed out his doctrinal convictions out of the window, if you will, uh, regarding Gentiles, that the, there was no longer a distinction. He tossed what he knew to be true out of the window and violated his own conscience in order to please the party of the circumcision. Both the party of the circumcision in Antioch, and uh, whom he was fighting in this letter, and probably also the, the, the Jews down in Jerusalem as well. And he did that, why? Because he feared men more than he feared God. He was more concerned about pleasing men than he was about pleasing God. So, we need to fear God more than man so that we don't do something similar to what Peter did. And secondly, and here's the point today, you need to fear God more than man so that you will be able to do something similar to what Paul did. What did Paul do? Well, we read in verse 14 what Paul did get back there. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, notice the gospel is at stake. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews. In other words, why are you reverting back to uh, insisting that Gentiles act like and live like Jews when you yourself don't live like a Jew anymore? You don't follow the ceremonial laws anymore. And now you're 
expecting the Gentiles to follow those same Old Testament ceremonial laws, to be, in effect, Jewish. What Paul did here is, yes, what Paul did is he called both Peter and Barnabas, but especially Peter, to the carpet. He uh, gave him a verbal lashing, if you will, on this occasion. He did it for three reasons. First, he did it because Peter and Barnabas, their hypocritical behavior was causing other Christians, Jewish Christians, converts from Judaism, in Antioch. He was causing Jewish Christians in Antioch to follow their bad example, to distance themselves from uh, Gentile Christians in the church. Secondly, Paul did it because Peter and Barnabas' hypocritical behavior was leading others in that church uh, to conclude that Gentile followers of Christ who weren't observing Old Testament ceremonial laws were really not quite full-fledged members of the household of faith, of the church. That is, they were not full-fledged Christians, which is to say they were not fully right with God, which is to say they were not fully saved. The gospel is at stake. Peter and Barnabas' actions were encouraging others to draw the conclusion that a person isn't truly saved or fully saved unless and until he is living like an observant Jew. That's what their actions were causing people to begin to believe. And thus, their actions, by their actions, they were undermining the heart of the gospel. Which he sets forth in no uncertain terms in verses 15 and 16, which we looked at last week, but I'll read it again. Uh, This is not the part of our text for today, but uh, I'll read what the gospel is. We... uh, Paul himself here, and he's uh, thinking about uh, also Peter and Barnabas as well. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, though that's true, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, even we uh, Jews rather, he means, have believed in Christ Jesus that we Jews may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Remember, justified means to be pardoned, and it means to be declared righteous in the sight of God. The third reason why Paul uh, went after Peter is because Paul was more concerned about pleasing God than he was about pleasing or being liked by Peter or the party of the circumcision in Jerusalem or in Antioch. In other words, Paul feared God more than he did man, which is why he confronted his fellow apostle. How did he confront him? Well, Peter and Barnabas' sin was a public sin. It had been committed out in the open for everyone in the church there in Antioch to see. 
refusing to sit at the same table with Gentile believers, even though they knew in their hearts that Gentile Christians were just as spiritually clean and just as much a part of Christ's church as Jewish Christians were. They knew that, and yet they refused to sit with those fellow Christians who happened to be of Gentile background. And because their sin was a public sin, Paul had to confront and rebuke them publicly. Why? Well, to make it clear to anyone who might have embraced erroneous doctrines uh, or have engaged in sinful behavior as a result of uh, Peter and Barnabas's bad example, that those two men were, in fact, in sin when they did those things. People needed to know that. The whole church at large needed to know Peter was in sin and Barnabas, to the degree that he followed him, he too was in sin. And so, It had to be a public rebuke. Also, it was necessary to undo the damage that their uh, behavior had done to the church there in Antioch. It had had caused division in the church. It It had driven Christians apart from each other. And of course, it had wounded the cause of Christ in the process, which is perhaps even more scandalous and evil. And so public rebuke was required for that to take place, for it to, uh, to help undo or repair that damage. And also, finally, it was necessary to serve as a warning, the public uh, um, rebuke of Peter, to serve as a warning to others who might otherwise be tempted to believe that human effort can in any way contribute to one's right standing before God. So he publicly rebuked him. What was the effect of Paul's rebuke of Peter? Well, first of all, it helped to solidify the first century church, first century church, its understanding of and its commitment to the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. This was, this undoubtedly helped to strengthen the understanding that justification is only by faith. We are pardoned and we are declared righteous only by faith. It's the instrument by which that happens and there is nothing else that is added that that comes into play there. Works play no part. And this confrontation helped to cement that uh, understanding uh, in the early church, not just in Antioch, but uh, at large. And also, Paul's rebuke of Peter had the, uh, made the point to the church, not just then, but down through the ages, including to us, that no man, not even a man of Peter's ecclesiastical stature, shall we say, is immune from error and is above need for rebuke when that error occurs. So what what can we learn from this, in in addition to what I just said, that no man is above error, uh, including uh, churchmen and in need of rebuke? What are some other things that we can learn from Paul's example here? Well, in order to find the courage, and it does take courage, in order to find the courage necessary to do the right thing, when doing the right thing is highly unpleasant, 
especially for those of us who don't like confrontation, uh, in order to find the courage to do that, our fear of God needs to outweigh our fear of men. Over in Proverbs verse chapter 16, verse 6, it says this, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. That's how we keep away from evil. Children, this is important. We fear God, and that helps us not to sin, to not lie, to not uh, be disrespectful of our parents, and things of that nature. Even You may want to at times. You have to go, no, God... God tells me I can't do that, and I have, to, I have to respect God and do the right thing because God says so. And that applies to little things like uh, fibs and what have you and disrespect. That, those aren't little things, but it also applies to things like this, rebuking uh, men of power, shall we say, people of power. Now, there's a difference between the way the church is supposed to handle public sins and the way it's supposed to handle private sins. I want to spend a little bit of time here just at the end of our sermon sermon to talk about that. There's a difference. Um, Scripture makes it clear that private sins, those which are known to only a few individuals, should be dealt with privately. Uh, And this is where Matthew 18 comes into play here. Matthew 18, 15, we read, If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And so, a private sin uh, that is not widely known, this is how it is to be dealt with. People are supposed to go one-on-one to the person and say, Look, brother, you've sinned. This is, this is improper. What you said or what you did or what have you, you, you need to repent. And then, of course, if he doesn't, then the, the process continues. But that's how private sins are to be with, uh, dealt with. But the king of the church requires public sins, those which are widely known, to be publicly rebuked. This is evident from the way that Paul handled Peter and Barnabas's sin of hypocrisy on this occasion. And, I would add, Uh, and this is connected to this, but it's also evident from the fact that God had this confrontation recorded in Scripture uh, and included in the New Testament canon so that we could read it and I could preach from it and others could preach from it and and note this. So it wasn't just for that immediate time period uh, and, uh, you know, to those of that generation that, that they realized public sins need to be publicly rebuked, but it was but it was included in Holy Writ, so that the church down through the ages would know that. And public confrontation of public sin is particularly important in the case of church leaders. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, the following. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin 
Rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Notice, the reason that Paul gives for requiring the public rebuke of the public sins of elders is so that other members of the church, and particularly, it seems, other elders, will be fearful of falling into that sin themselves. But notice also, in uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, that bringing an accusation against an elder is a serious matter and should only be allowed if there are at least two uh, witnesses to the alleged sin. But making such an accusation against an elder under these circumstances where there is at least two or more credible witnesses Making such an accusation is not only allowed, it's essential for the spiritual well-being of God's people and for the glory of God. It's something, in other words, that you need to be willing to do, unpleasant though it inevitably will be, or would be. You need to be willing to do it, I need to be willing to do it, we all need to be willing to do it. Um, And it's the fear of God, the respect for, the reverence of, the the awe of God that will give us the motivation that we need to do it if we ever need to do it. We need to have the courage to defend the gospel against any and all attacks upon it, including attacks that come from within the church and even from within the leadership of the church. That's often where heresy starts. And we all need to be zealous for the truth and be willing to do whatever it need we need to do in the right biblical fashion, uh, right way in other words, but to do whatever it takes Uh, to expose um, sin in the church and threats to the gospel. I think of recent threats to the gospel that have reared their head in the last uh, uh, couple of centuries in the United States, some more recent than others. The new perspective on Paul um, that uh, N.T. Wright and others uh, espouse teaches that the good news of the gospel is that is that all people groups, not just Jews, are welcome into the membership of the church. That's the good news of the gospel, according to N.T. Wright. Heresy. Absolutely heresy. And those who follow that, 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 that teaching like that needs to be rooted out. And um, it was more dangerous or more prevalent in, uh, 10 or 15 years ago than it is now. Federal vision is another example. Salvation is a result, ultimate, justi- ultimate justification is dependent upon covenant faithfulness. Heresy. Not the gospel. It's Romish. And the Church of Christ. Salvation is a result of faith in Christ plus baptism. If baptism is absent, you're doomed. Heresy. 
All of these are examples, and there are more that are going to be coming if, the, if Jesus tarries, undoubtedly. There are going to be more. And they could possibly occur in our midst, uh, in our denomination, maybe even in our congregation. May God forbid it, but it's possible. The point is, we all need to be diligent, especially we leaders, but you congregants as well. Um, and if you see or hear things that are inappropriate, especially among, from myself or from one of the other elders, you need to go to one of the other elders uh, to, get, to get help with dealing with it and uh, perhaps even go to the presbytery. Or after I'm gone, if I, I'm not, don't have plans to leave, but if, if, you know, if I, Jesus takes me tomorrow and you get a new guy in here, um, you'll have to be vigilant while he's here. We have to, we have to do what we have to do, um, and not for the sake of being uh, courage, courageous just in and of itself, but for the, out of love for God and His truth. Are you willing to sacrifice? Um, are you willing to pay the price? for uh, standing up for the gospel, even if you're attacked for it. God can give you the grace to do that. You need to pray, and I need to pray for the grace that we might do that, if the time ever calls for it. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this reminder of, uh, first of all, that Um, church leaders, even godly and mature church leaders, are capable of being led astray, uh, are capable of violating their conscience. Lord, we must never put church leaders on a pedestal. Thank you for this reminder of that. And thank you also for the reminder, Lord, uh, in this text of our need to be courageous in our standing up for truth and righteousness. Lord, there are different ways in which we may need to stand up for truth and righteousness in, in our lives and before our lives are over. Would you please give each one of us the courage to fear you, to revere you more than we fear men and thus enable us to do what is difficult to do, to confront people, to, uh, uh, to risk destroying relationships um, and things of that nature. Please give us courage, Lord. Uh, And to do it out of reverence for you, but more than just reverence, Lord, out of love for you and for your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.